Amen. Let us read together from Zechariah 4. This is part of our sermon text. I'm going to cover Zechariah 4, 5, and 6 this evening, Lord willing. Let's start by reading Zechariah 4 today. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me, as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the highs of the Lord, which stand to and fro throughout the whole earth. Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, what are, these two olive, what are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. This is the word of God, and we say, Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. As obscure as this text may be, we know that it's useful, and we pray that you'll use it tonight. We pray for ears to hear, for hearts to receive your word. We pray that you'll guard my lips, and we pray this ultimately, that you will be glorified, and that your church will be built up. So do that, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into the text this evening, I know that's a lot of interesting details. Let me start with a question. The theme of Zechariah, as we've talked about in previous weeks, has been encouragement. God gives his prophet visions and words to encourage his people Israel who are in a difficult situation. The temple is decimated the people were taken into captivity and they've returned the foundation of the temple is now rebuilt but the people are watching a slow rebuild and so god in his mercy gives them encouragement a series of encouragements a series of vivid interesting at times confusing encouragements as we see let's start with this question what encourages you believer Ponder that for a moment. When was the last time you were really 
encouraged. Think of something specific if you can. And what did that encouragement do for you? I suspect the encouragement, in whatever form it came, I suspect that it energized you. It pushed you to press on. That's the purpose of encouragement. And that's the intention of our Lord in this text. But think for a moment about encouragement. Now, I'm an English teacher by day, and this will show my true colors, I think, tonight. I'm a bit of a word dork. I learned a new word this week. It's like encourage, but the word is enhearten. Enhearten, that's a good word. I should have known it by now, I think, but enhearten means to give heart. Encourage to give courage. So think about words for a moment. What does encouragement mean? I think often when we think about that word, we're thinking about specific. You did this well at your job this week. You did this well at your job this week. But what we see in Scripture is often not individual encouragement. So what we're going to see tonight is that the Lord is encouraging his corporate body. His people Israel at large are going to receive the same message. There's a time and a place, of course, for individual encouragement. Think of Paul to Timothy. He says this, Let no one despise you for your youth, but be an example to the believers in word. He's talking specifically to Timothy. And he says this, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Now, not everyone had their, had their elders to lay their hands on. This encouragement was specific to Timothy. And I'm sure that when the going got tough for Timothy, he really could look back on that and be encouraged. The elders laid their hands on me. I've been set aside. I do have the gift. And that means something to him, I'm sure. We're Americans, and our tendency is to be very individualized. And sometimes when we're looking for encouragement, we're looking for someone to look us in the eyes and give us something just so specific that only we could receive. <coughs> sometimes that's what we need, but sometimes that's what the Lord gives. And I start this way because the Lord encourages us so often by giving us a corporate body, a generic message. That's what happens in our text is that God is encouraging us. So I want you to walk away encouraged as an individual, but know from the outset this isn't necessarily going to be to you or to you or to you. This is to all of us. This is to the people of Israel and now to us, the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. So you will see, I think, there's been an outline passed around. I don't often do this, but there's a lot of material tonight. The outline is a bit confusing, and so we've provided that uh, just as a way to kind of keep up with what we're going to do. We're going to cover the last four visions. There's eight visions in Zechariah. Tonight we'll cover the fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth. And then finally at the end, there is a specific word, a specific set of instructions given to Zechariah, who then relays it to Joshua the high priest. There's four visions 
and one word from the Lord. The first of these visions is the fifth vision. It comes in Zechariah 4 that we just read. And it's this, God's servant, Zerubbabel, will rebuild the house of God. It's the first thing in your outline. You'll notice that I'm going to go somewhat quickly through these visions. I do hope to apply the word and spend some time. So as many details and interesting things there are to discuss, I'm going to move at somewhat of a brisk pace. So let's begin. The book of Haggai informs us to who Zerubbabel is. He's the governor of Judah, and he is a descendant of David, and therefore he is qualified to rebuild the temple. And he has helped get the temple started, and before our scene here, that's what he's done. Now notice in chapter 4, the very beginning, the prophet says, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold. And this lampstand has a number of candlesticks, if you will. They're not wax candles, but this is a lamp that is an oil lamp, and it is sustained by olive trees, both on the left and on the right. <coughs> and this lamp, a menorah, if you will, is sustained by olive trees. It's an olive oil lamp. So what are the trees doing on the right and the left? Well, if you have a tree on the right and on the left side, the oil will be perpetual. It will continue to flow. So what does this do for the lamp? Well, the lamp does not have to be continually relit. The lamp is lit one time, the oil continues to flow, and therefore the lamp keeps shining. It keeps burning. That's an odd image I know for us. I think this, by the way, may be the most confusing of the visions. Let that be an encouragement to you. But what does this mean? What does this lamp have to do? Well, there's a light and it's going to keep burning. Zechariah asks for an interpretation and we're glad he did. And the angel says, do you not know what these are? And the angel provides him. He says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor, not, nor by power, but by my spirit. Later we see verse 9, the hands of Zerubbabel, who have laid the foundation of this temple, his hands shall also finish it. So the temple has been started, but not completed. And Zerubbabel, presumably, is looking around, how are we going to complete this temple? And the Lord provides an answer by my spirit. I will be providing the resources, the materials, everything you need, the camaraderie, the brotherhood, everything, the people that you need to rebuild this temple, I am going to be providing it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For Zerubbabel, in his lifetime, will set the capstone. Notice that in verse 7, Zerubbabel will finish it. move on to the next vision. I said we'll go to the first pace. Let's keep to that. The sixth vision, this is chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. This, in your outline, should be God's word will judge the house of the wicked. 
God's word will judge the house of the wicked. If you're looking in your Bibles there, you will see that Zechariah sees a flying scroll. It's large, it's double-sided, and it's up in the air flying. The text says this, Then I turned and raised my eyes and saw there a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? So I answered, A flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. And he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to this side of it. So what does this mean? So there's double sides, and on one you have perjurers will be expelled, and on the other side you have every thief will be expelled. Most commentators agree that this represents the Ten Commandments. So you have on one side of the scroll half of the commands, and on the other side of the scroll, the other half of the commands. So, presumably we could see the first four commands on one side and the latter six. These are governing our relationship to God, the other side governing our relationship to man. And notice what this word does. It's flying over, and notice who it's flying over. It's flying over the wicked. Not only does it fly over the house of the wicked, it goes into the midst of the wicked. It shall enter the house of the thief, and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. So what we have, we have a flying set of ten commandments that will enter the house of the wicked and consume it. What do we make of that? The wicked will be confronted with the word of God. Now and for all eternity, as we'll see, they will be judged by it, and it will dwell with them in their midst. They will not escape its condemnation in hell, for the law of God will remain forever. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell. The wicked will rage against God, and his law will still be flying over them. They will recognize it for what it is. Meanwhile, the righteous, they love the law of the Lord. It is a lamp unto their feet. It is sweet as honey. The word gives life and understanding. Think about this for a moment. The wicked sometimes look as if they are free and without care. And even if this is so, they will not remain in such a state. They may live as if God's law, God's law does not apply to them. They may live as if it doesn't matter if they obey it or not. But God's law, sooner or later, as this text shows, will haunt the wicked. Its demands will press them down and crush them. They will not be able to ignore it. And as in this vision, how can you ignore it? It's flying above their heads. It'll be imprinted on a large scroll. And even if they try to close their curtains, think about this. If the wicked are in their house and they try to close their curtains, the word does not just remain outside. The text says it goes inside of their house. It will not knock on the door and ask for permission. It will just barge right in. 
The word will dwell right there in the house of the wicked, and the house of the wicked will not be able to withstand it, and the house will be eaten. That's the word. It will be consumed. So people have a choice. You and I have a choice. We can eat God's word, receive life, or we can be eaten by it. You may consume it, or God's word will consume you. That's what Jeremiah says. Your words were found, and I ate them. The psalmist, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. For the one who eats the word, there's life, growth, joy. The one who's eaten, there's curse, anger, destruction. And the destruction will be total. The whole house will come under judgment, even the stones and timbers, according to our text. Next, we have the seventh vision. This is Zechariah 5, verses 5 to 11. The outline should read this way. God scatters the wicked and builds for them a house of judgment. God scatters the wicked and builds for them a house of judgment. This also deals with God's actions towards evildoers. The house of the wicked is consumed by the word of God. And here we see that God removes the wicked from the land and places them into a new house. And that house is a house of judgment. The wicked are represented, notice, by a woman. This woman is sitting inside of a basket. And we know the woman in the basket represents wickedness because the angel tells Zechariah this directly. Let's pick up in verse 8. The angel who talked with me came out and said to me, lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, what is it? And he said, it is a basket that is going forth. And he also said, this is the resemblance throughout the earth. Here's a lead disc lifted up and this woman sitting inside the basket. And then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So the angel thrusts wickedness, this woman, down into a basket. It's an obscure image, I know. But I think the meaning is clear. Then two other women come, and these women have wings. They're some sort of angelic being, and they lift the basket up. And in verse 10 and 11, we read that they take the basket to the land of Shinar. So wickedness is removed out of the land and taken to Shinar. And Shinar is noteworthy. You may recognize that name. It was in Shinar that the people built the Tower of Babel back in Genesis 11. People in Shinar tried to make a great name for themselves. They lived for their own glory, not for God's glory. And at Shinar, God judged the people. Shinar is also another name for the land of Babylon. They're synonyms, really. And in Scripture, Babylon, of course, is an actual historical place, but Babylon is more than that. It's representative of something in Scripture. It's a symbol, or it's an alternate name for the city of the wicked. This is something we previously talked about in Zechariah. In Revelation 17, we see both the wicked woman and Babylon. They're wrapped up into the same image. 
And now looking back to Zechariah 5, let's think about this woman in a basket. Take note that the basket has a lead cover. I think the cover is heavy enough. I think the point is it's heavy enough that she can't escape. She can't pop out. The basket's a holding place for the woman while he builds a house for her to dwell. So the wicked will have a house. Not just the righteous, but the wicked will have a house. And this house is outside of the covenant community. It's a place of sorrow, misery, anger. God makes a place for them. It's not a place of rest, like heaven will be. It is a waiting place for the last day. We read about that in Revelation 18. Let's move to the eighth vision now. The eighth vision, Zechariah 6, verses 1 to 8. The outline should read this way. God's angel armies conquer and subdue the wicked nations. God's angel armies conquer and subdue the wicked nations. So the wicked so far, the word of the Lord has consumed their house. God built them a new house. And now the angel armies will conquer and subdue the wicked. This is the final of Zechariah's visions. The prophet raises his eyes and sees chariots. He sees horses. And chariots, of course, are war instruments. And they're intended here to show that God's angel army is on the move. They're on the attack. And this, interestingly, is what we saw in the first vision. So the first vision, God's angel army is patrolling the earth. Here in the final vision, as a bookend of sorts, God's angel armies are again patrolling the earth. This time, though, they see success. They see finality. Two sets of horses go to the north, only one to the south. Babylon is to the north. They're going to Babylon. They're putting their resources in Babylon. Let's look closely now at verse 8. He called to me and spoke to me, saying, See, those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. So these chariots... These horses, they go in different directions, but the ones that go to the north, the ones that go to Babylon, they give God's spirit rest. What does that mean? The New American Standard puts it this way. Those who go to the land of the north, the chariots that go to the land of the north, they have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. Appeased my wrath. So the folks... In the land of the north, have met destruction. God's spirit is given rest because his army is successful. His army attacks. His wrath is appeased, and God's enemies, Israel's enemies, are thwarted. The wicked have been dealt with, and the eight visions come to a close. Okay. I know that's brisk. Let's look at this fifth point. This is not a vision, but I'm going to keep it in this section. This is a word from God to Zechariah, Zechariah 6, verses 9 to 15. This should read, God's servant, the branch, will build the house of God. God's servant, the branch, will build the house of God. Our first point tonight, and that's Zerubbabel. He built the house of God. Now this is changing the image a bit. The branch will build the house of God. 
Here God tells Zechariah to take the gold and the silver that the Israelite captives who've come back from Babylon. He says, take that gold, take that silver, and make an elaborate crown. And then Zechariah is given instructions. Set the crown on Joshua, the high priest. And this is interesting, too, because Joshua has already been crowned. In the fourth vision, he was given a turban. Joshua's a high priest. The high priest is not a king, but this is a king's crown. The priest in the fourth vision is given a priestly turban. Now, Joshua's given a king's crown. Picking up in verse 12, here are the words. The Lord of hosts says this. This is after he puts the crown on Joshua. Behold, the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. What's repeated there? The branch, the king, the priest, he will build the temple of the Lord. For the house of God is available in the outline. And this line is repeated for us. It's the emphasis I think the Holy Spirit wants us to get. The branch will build the house of the Lord. The branch will build the house of the Lord. So how is this different than what we saw previously? We know from chapter 4, Jesus Christ is the branch. No one could fulfill the office of priest and king at the same time. But notice the next few verses. This will help us interpret this. Notice the next few verses. You're going to see something a priest does, you're going to see something a king does, and you're going to see that they're the same person. So this is the Old Testament prophecies all coming together to be one. He shall bear the glory, and he shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So the priest will sit on a kingly throne, and the king will be a priest. I won't belabor this point because we spent time a few weeks ago talking about this. But the branch will rule from a throne. The branch will be a priest. Sounds like Hebrews, doesn't it? Jesus. Hebrews 4.14. He's our great high priest. He's passed through the heavens. The Son of God. Hebrews 1. Your throne, O God, is forever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. These two things are coming together in Zechariah. And I would argue for the first time, probably 500 years before Christ comes, the Old Testament just reveals more and more and more of who the Messiah will be. There's no one like Christ. Jews waiting for the Messiah, were perplexed by him when he came. The Christ came, and he fulfilled the prophet, the priest, and the king, all wrapped into one. More than that, he died. He rose again. He himself, though he's the priest, offering prayers on our behalf, offered himself, though he's the priest. And that is the gospel. Now, the text is over. That's brisk, I understand, but look at the way that we can apply this. I, well, I struggle to know how to say this. 
there's a, I think there's a difficulty going through a book like this because we go through a book like this and it seems so distant and it seems difficult to apply. Let's consider what's happening and consider how we may apply it. Through these four visions and this word to his prophet, God is boosting the morale of his people. I think that's clear. We've argued for that for weeks now. And God is strengthening them for the journey that lays ahead. Remember, their economy is decimated. The temple looks bleak. And God encourages them in these specific visions and this prophecy tonight. He encourages them, I think, in two primary ways. The first is this. God promises the judgment of the wicked. The sixth, the seventh, the eighth vision, they're all about the judgment of the wicked. God's word will judge the house of the wicked. God's angelic beings will remove the wicked from the land and place them in a new house, a house of judgment. And then God's armies will subdue and conquer the wicked. So God will handle the wicked. That's the first thing. And the second way that God strengthens his people in our text this evening is that he promises to build a new house for the people of God. He promises to build a new house. We see this at the beginning and then at the end of the text. The fifth vision is a rubble is going to build it, and then we see the branch is going to build it. So, can we benefit from these two things? And if so, how? I think we can still make use of these visions and this ancient word from God. But we're not Israelites. We're not under a theocratic government. We're not under the same old covenant. We've not been tasked with trying to build a new temple, a new temple building in Jerusalem. So how then do we apply this? First, God promises the church that her enemies will be crushed. It may not sound like an encouragement, but let's press into this point a little bit more. God's promise to crush the wicked is a guarantee. Why does he promise such a thing? We could say that God promises to crush the wicked because he's just. We could say that God promises to crush the wicked because he's holy. He will not tolerate evil. But I'm going to argue that this is also for our encouragement. He crushes the wicked and you should be encouraged by that. You should be energized by this fact. Some may cheat the church. False shepherds may come in. They may lead people astray. Some will even kill Christians because they belong to Christ. But the encouragement is this. You should take heart. Do not let your hands droop by your sides. Keep working. Keep persevering. God will get vengeance. And we we need not seek it out for ourselves. Romans 12 is true. These words from the Apostle Paul. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Why does God write that? Take heart, beloved. For the Lord your God will crush the bad guys. Evil people will see that they have been wrong all along. Don't you want them to see they've been wrong? Not to be petty or vindictive, but don't you want the evil people to see that they've been evil? They will see that they are no match for our God. 
And when they are crushed, there will be singing and rejoicing. There will be. This might make some of us bristle a bit. But this is the truth. There will be rejoicing when the wicked are crushed. And we should be encouraged by this. This is a difficult thing to say it is, but it's true. When the Israelites left their captivity in Egypt, they crossed safely through the Red Sea. And when, after they had gone through the sea, God closed the passage through the Red Sea, and the waters did what? They came back over and they drowned Pharaoh's soldiers and horsemen. The Israelites were safe, the Egyptians were drowned, and there was singing. Listen to this, the song of Moses from Exodus 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he is cast into the sea. His chosen captains also were drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. That's a song. Similarly, in Revelation 18, Babylon, which represents wickedness, is thrown down and crushed by God, and there too we see singing. Revelation 19, verses 1 and 2. After these things, after Babylon was crushed, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. That's singing. That's rejoicing. God will win the battle. You will not need to fear man. God's enemies, the church's enemies, will be destroyed. And the message this evening is this fact. This should energize you, church. Strange as it may seem, but all of Scripture is for this purpose. It's to galvanize us. It's to, to use my word from earlier, enhearten us, take heart. The wicked will be destroyed. Satan and his minions will not get the victory, so press forwards. Secondly, lastly, be encouraged because God is building his house, even now. He is building and he will keep building it until the last day. And I'm not speaking of a literal stone temple that Zerubbabel built. The temple being built now, that house, it's not made with hands. First Peter says that Christians are living stones and we're being built up into a spiritual house. There are not animal sacrifices in this temple, but spiritual sacrifices offered up to God through Jesus Christ. Listen to Peter's words. You living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ is the cornerstone of this spiritual house and you, believer, are one of the living stones. You are the house. We are the house. Just as the Israelites were building a house 
And they would be encouraged. The foundation is built. Now another layer is built. And they would rejoice. They were encouraged with the progress. So too should we be encouraged. For God's house is being built up. The church has never been greater in number. And never before has the church existed in so many different countries or languages. Our Lord said that the gospel must be preached in all the world, and then the end would come. And we should be encouraged. Christianity is spreading. The scriptures are being translated. As we speak, it's being translated into languages of people who have never before heard about Jesus. This form of encouragement that I'm arguing for, it's not an ordinary means of grace. It's not a primary means of grace. But reading missions updates, and Pastor Ryan talked about this this morning, Grace Aberdeen, Scotland, they're growing in number. What should that do to us? It should energize us. It should encourage us. There are more visitors coming to this church. Let that energize you. We're reformed folks, I understand, and we can be a bit sometimes stoic about numbers or something like that. But in a sense, in, in this sense, not like that, I think I think this is just fine. Be encouraged. Africa, there are so many Christians. China, India. The church may be waning in the West, it's uncertain. But the church is growing at large, and we don't have a promise that the church is necessarily going to spread more and more in America in this age, in this, our lifetime. But we do know, promise from our Lord, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We should be encouraged. We should be energized, galvanized. Take heart. It looks bleak out there. Yes. Our primary means of grace are indeed the primary means of grace. With that said, it's appropriate and I think biblical to be encouraged for the Lord is growing his church. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for all that you're doing around the world. And we pray that you'll do it more here in Hampton. We pray for more converts here in Hampton, more in India, more in China, and all over the world. We pray for workers to be sent out into the harvest field, for the fields are white for harvest. We thank you for the promises we do have, that you indeed will have a remnant from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And let us, Lord, be encouraged, energized by the fact that you are indeed building your church. And may we be part of, may we be part of fulfilling the Great Commission to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Please stand with me and let's sing praises to our Lord and God.